Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And stand with me. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. We're starting a three-week Christmas series today entitled Cradle, Cross, and Crown, Seeing Christ in All His Glory. I'm going to guess you've never heard a Christmas series sermon from Hebrews 2. Today I'm preaching the glory of Christ's life and how God restored in Christ what man ruined in sin. So I'll begin at verse 5 and go to verse 9. This is God's word. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we are, we are needy. We acknowledge that you have spoken truth that we need. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. That, Lord, you would help us to set aside the, the worries and cares of our hearts, that we would lift those to you and that we would focus on the glory of Christ we thank you, Lord, for the privilege. Lord, we pray that your spirit would use your word in our hearts for your purposes and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. How would you finish this sentence? It wouldn't be Christmas without... Dot, dot, dot. It wouldn't be Christmas without what? You insert whatever makes it Christmas for you. It wouldn't be Christmas without what? Decorations, time with family, presents, a Christmas tree, Christmas music. A lot more probably. I hope, though, that your answer is not missing the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people get very nostalgic and traditional at Christmas time and if they don't have certain things it just isn't Christmas it's not Christmas if we don't have our eyes on our glorious Lord Jesus the glory of Christ's life is seen at the cradle the stable in the manger at his birth which we celebrate at Christmas and we should be celebrating that all year long every day But we are pretty holiday-focused people in America. I think we go from sometimes from holiday to holiday to holiday and kind of some people from weekend to weekend and all that. But we should be celebrating his life, death, and resurrection daily, every day. 
but isn't our attention often on lesser things even at christmas it's one thing to say yeah i'm, I'm worshiping jesus at christmas but but what happens is there, the selfish desires come in and um, oblig- a lot of obligations and a lot of expectations and stressful situations and and we get caught up it's probably not anywhere more more prevalent or or obvious than in our consumerism we get caught up in consumerism we end up spending too much at christmas i don't come across a lot of people who say you know i didn't spend enough on gifts you know and then there's the impulse buys right they're right there at the at the counter you know at the checkout counter or you know as you're shopping online which most people do now they're just they're right there on the side on the on the right there we spend billions on junk that's destined to land in a landfill destined to burn uh, in online shopping alone by the way we spent almost 4.5 billion dollars between thanksgiving and black friday on cyber monday alone we spent three billion dollars americans are expected to spend 469 billion dollars on gifts this christmas season you think about it put it in this kind of perspective if only one penny out of every one of those dollars went to the poor that would be 4.69 billion dollars the average american household is going to spend about 830 dollars on christmas gifts this year so we spend too much, and, and we also, we desire a lot of things. We, we want a lot of things. I know when I was a kid, it was, hey, what do you want for Christmas? You know, it's funny, no one asks me that anymore. No one cares what I want for Christmas. <laughs> but, but longing for what you do not have, and let's just say you're long past, you know, wanting a gift, a specific gift for Christmas. You know, you don't want the toy, the toy train, you don't want the pony, you don't want the bike anymore. But you want things. Every one of us wants things. We, you know, peace on earth or peace in my house or whatever it is that you're wanting. And the battle is really for your heart. Are you going to worship Jesus? Or are you going to worship all the things, really all the idols that your heart is, is clamoring after? So you have overspending. And we really, I, I would say we're over-desiring and, and we're hurting. And we don't really hide it very well at Christmas. We put on a good face and put on some red and green clothes, I guess. But we can't hide our pain. We can't even hide it at Christmas time. And there are bad marriages and frustrated kids and frustrated parents and difficult relatives and irreconcilable differences and a lot of lonely people. They say that Thanksgiving is the loneliest holiday of the year and I'm guessing that Christmas is right up there as well. Therapist schedules are, are packed around this time of year. So we're relationally messed up. And I think it's very easy to see how we could miss Jesus at Christmas. I think for many people, Christmas is like a log ride. You get on the, the ride and you say, I'm going to ride this out and I'll catch up with Jesus in January. He'll be one of my New Year's resolutions. So we spend too much, we want too much, we, we hurt a lot, and we end up, we end up at, at the, a lot of people at the end of Christmas end up more tired, more unhappy, and more lonely than they, than they were when they started. Am I, am, I, am I cheering you up for Christmas? Am I giving you some Christmas cheer here? How can we regain our sanity? We live insane lives. How can we regain our sanity? There's one answer I can point you to today. See Christ in all his glory. 
See Christ in all his glory. I think a fresh look at Jesus will do us all a world of good. And it's really easy to see, G- to see Christmas as a standalone holiday that's basically divorced from, from all the others. Um, a baby is safe for us. All right? Ricky Bobby thought that a baby was safe. Right? He wants Jesus in golden fleece diapers. Um, a baby comforts us, but we need to see the things together, that his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, see it all together. Okay? All, I, I love the fact that you know, outside we have a cross and a cradle right there, uh, and the word in there, because, because you, you can't just worship baby Jesus, right? But a lot of people want to. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to see the glory of Christ's life in light of his death and resurrection. And then next week, we're going to see the glory of Christ's death in light of his life and his resurrection, and the week after, the glory of Christ's resurrection and exaltation in light of his life and his death. It all goes together. I used to have an old antique movie camera that that had these three interchangeable connected uh, lenses and it was like a, it was like old old school zoom okay so uh, they didn't have that capability so they just gave me three lenses and I just you just turn them wherever you want them and and uh, I guess that's kind of how I, I want us to approach these next three weeks that the big idea uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and the life death and resurrection of Jesus is the only answer for the problems of this world. And we're going to look at kind of each one separately, but not completely separately. Now, me saying that, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only answer for the problems of this world should, should highlight a question that's probably come across your mind. It's an age-old dilemma for professing believers if Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the answer to all the problems of this world, then why are there so many problems in the world? Why aren't they all just, you know, poof, solved, vaporized uh, when you come to faith in Christ? How is it that, that the nations are raging, as we saw so well last week, and, and we know that our hearts are raging, we know the depth of depravity to which our hearts can go, and we look around and we don't yet see Jesus reigning over everything. We know he is reigning. And he is reigning in the hearts of believers. But we don't see the world. We don't see every knee bowing. And we don't hear every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is this so? Now this is the question that the writer of Hebrews answers. As he is exhorting his first century readers, his hearers, and and we see that it's a very, uh, it's, the question's justified. If the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the answer, then how come, how come the present world is so messed up? What is the, the relation uh, of, of the present world to the saving work of Christ? And this is the question that the writer of Hebrews answers. And we get, we get into that idea really right away at the beginning of Hebrews. So, so go to Hebrews 1. We're going to start there. We're going to start in Hebrews 1. You come face to face with Jesus in Hebrews. I love the fact that the writer of Hebrews remains anonymous and that as he quotes the Old Testament throughout the entire letter, he, he usually keeps it anonymous. Somewhere it's written. That's what I just read a few minutes ago. Somewhere it's written. He knows where it's written. But this is highlighting that this is God's word. God's the author. God's the inspirer. This is his infallible, inerrant word. 
and, and, the, and, the, and the writer to the Hebrews was writing in this kind of setting. He's writing to first century Jewish believers who are going through a lot of trouble. They're losing their jobs. Some of them are in danger of losing their lives. And he's trying to encourage them in the, their time of trial. He wants them to, to focus on the absolute sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is better than all. So you, you read the first few verses of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then he begins to describe him. He is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to know the glory of God? Look to Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So he is God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about it. Every, every molecule, every atom, every bit of your body is being held together right now by God. If he wanted to let go, we would all splat against the wall. Everything would just break loose. He holds everything together by the word of his power. Everything in the universe. And it says that after making purification for sins, so right away in the book of Hebrews, you hear about what Jesus did. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, this place of authority. He's, he's ascended, he's exalted, having become as much superior to the angels because the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the main point of Hebrews 1 is God has spoken to us in his son and his son is better and greater and stronger than anything or anyone. Jesus is better than. And you move on to chapter 2 and right away you see a warning. There is a warning. Now this is the immediate context of what we're going to look at today. Here's the warning. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus to what we've heard why it's so we won't drift so we won't drift away from Christ you know the pull sometimes you don't even realize you've drifted and you look back and you're like wow look how far I've, I've drifted I've fallen away I've I'm, I'm not, I'm not close. A lot of people say I'm not close. I don't feel close to the Lord. You know, it's been a long time since I've read the Bible or I haven't been praying or I'm not in fellowship with other believers and, and you drift away. The writer of Hebrews uses two nautical terms. The first is pay close attention. Literally, that means tie yourself up to the dock. Like tie your life, tie your life to the dock of Jesus so that you won't drift away, so that you won't miss out on Jesus. And we are, aren't we drifters? We're drifters. We're easily distracted and deceived and discouraged. And Paul said it well to the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He said, I'm afraid for you. I think some of us should be afraid for our lives. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, that's his deception, that your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
That's what we want. We want a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And Paul says, I'm afraid for you, Corinthians, that you're going to get deceived. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm afraid that you're going to drift. Pay close attention to what you've heard. Pay close attention to the gospel message. And now the author continues with some explanation. He's, he's spoken of Christ's superiority over angels. And he tells of his present reign at the right hand of God with all authority and dominion, power. But it's almost as if he's anticipating an, an objection. These first century believers are being faced with the prospect of violent persecution. They're going to be tempted to wonder, how can all this be happening to me? How can all this be happening to us if Christ is enthroned in power? How can God allow this? So Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, gives us a very remarkable answer to that question. And what this brief passage does is give a sweeping view of all of history. You want all of history summed up in, in a few verses? You've got it right here in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. A sweeping view of all of history, uh, the grand panorama of all of history seen in the life, the death, the resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. What we see here is that Jesus became man and restored man's dignity and God-ordained place in creation. Now this is something interesting for us I want to mention. Let's just pause for a moment and just look around the room and we see a Christmas tree and we see lights and decorations and uh, you go back to your place of dwelling and I'm going to guess you've got something similar. And um, that's what we do, right? This, this is our um, traditions and our our, um, our excitement even comes from, hey, you know, it's Christmas time. I'm hearing Christmas music, you know, in June, and so Christmas is coming soon, and uh, the decorations have, have gone up right after, you know, the 4th of July, and so, hey, it's Christmas coming, right? And, um, and here's an interesting thing to think about. The early church didn't celebrate the birth of Christ. They didn't celebrate Christmas they assumed the birth. They were all focused on, on the, the death and resurrection. You look at Peter's preaching in the, in the book of Acts. Go over there real quick. Uh, Acts 2. You should have that marked. Acts should be like, there should be a groove in Acts for you. Look at Acts 2. Start at verse 22. He's preaching, day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, there, they are, there he is. He's assuming the birth of Christ. Jesus, who was from Nazareth, that grew up in Nazareth, the carpenter's son, a man, there's his life, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, there's his life. There's those 33 years on earth. This Jesus, verse 23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. There's his death. Killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up. There's his resurrection and exaltation. Loosing the pangs of death, it was not possible for him to be held by it. So just keep in mind that the early church assumed the birth of Christ. 
And that all through the New Testament, you see the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, this passage we're in today is making the point that Jesus was born and lived his life and then died that we might live. Here's what we see in this passage. You can really um, organize it like this. Verses 5 through 8, paradise ruined. God's original intent uh, for man uh, was that he would rule, not that the angels would rule, but that man would rule over creation. You see it in Genesis 1, 26-28. But you have man's rebellion due to sin. Man fell from grace and is still suffering the consequences. The, the earth is not, the world is not subject to man. Man is subject to the world. That's why we hide when a tornado comes. So 5 through 8, paradise ruined, and then verse 9, paradise restored. You see Jesus on earth in the incarnation and Jesus in heaven in the exaltation. That's what we see in this passage. And so let's dive right into verse five. Paradise ruined, paradise lost. Basically man's lost dominion. Verse five says it was not to angels. Remember the writer has already said Jesus is better than angels. He's greater than angels. And it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So the writer of Hebrews is speaking about... The world to come. And angels won't be in charge of that world. Now subject pictures, picture this, soldiers under the authority of their commanding officer. God is not going to give the administration of the world to angels. Not the one to come, not the, not the world to come. The world to come is a future inhabited earth to come, the new world New heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The new world will not be ruled by angels. Even though the present world is by default. Satan is called the prince of this world. Ephesians 6 tells us that the world is under demonic influence. That the earth is now under the influence of both holy and fallen angels. 1 John 5.19 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But mankind was meant to rule the earth. One day that rule will be restored by God. The reason we don't all see all things under his feet, whose feet? You see this? We're talking about feet here. God's been speaking. Now we're talking about people's feet. We do not see everything in subjection to him. What is this? Who's him? Verse, not, um, excuse me, verse, verse 6 what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Whose feet? It would be easy to go, well, this is Jesus' feet. No, it's man's feet. Mankind's feet. This is, this is God's promise to man to have the world in subjection, to rule over the world. We're talking about literally the first Adam. We're talking about how Adam fell in sin. The glory of God was marred. The first Adam is our leader in that. Due to, all, due to sin, all things are not under mankind's feet. The, the purpose of God for us was to rule over his creation, but due to sin, that isn't happening. We're being ruled by creation. That's why your dog doesn't obey. We're deceived, we're disobedient, we get dejected over it, and, and here the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Again, he's, keep, he's staying anonymous to keep, keeps the writers of the Old Testament 
books he quotes anonymous as well throughout the book uh, highlighting God's authorship of scripture and he says it's been testified somewhere it's been, it's been, it's been spoken about and, and, and the question is what is man the idea is why is man so significant to God really it points out the insignificance of man why are you concerned why are you concerned God why do you pay attention to the purpose of helping man why why would you care for man why would God even bother with man Man, man sinned, man ruined it, man, man messed it up, man rebelled, man hates God. Why would God care? Verse 7 tells us he made him a little lower than the angels. How so? We're physical beings. Angels are spiritual beings. Angels were given spirit, uh, supernatural powers. If you want to get a great doctrine of angels in the Bible, go to the book of Hebrews. Angels have access all the time to God's throne. They, they don't die. God, in God's created order, mankind is a little lower than angels. But God crowned man with glory and honor. Made in the image of God. Crown is the Greek word stephanos. It's a crown of honor. It refers not to man now, but to Adam in his, in his innocent pre-fall state at creation. God appointed him over the works of his hands. Psalm 8 shows man as head of creation. Verse 8 tells us God put all things in subjection to him. So even though mankind is inferior to angels, God gave the oversight of earth to man. The administration of the earth originally placed in the hands of mankind. But due to the fall, mankind has been incapable of fulfilling his role. Utterly incapable of fulfilling that divinely ordained position. All things are not under man's feet. Now, King's throne was always elevated. It was a, a higher place, and everything was under him. People would even kiss his feet. One day, all creation will be under Christ's feet. But even now, because man has fallen short, so falls short of God's glorious ideal, we do not yet see everything under his feet. Genesis 3 tells us the earth was corrupted due to sin. The results of sin quickly spread. If you trace it through, through Genesis, you find that it's not long before man, men are murdering and, and there's polygamy and death and destruction and gross displays of depravity. It doesn't take man long to fall that far. Man steps out of bounds, out from under God, exalts himself, is brought low, and even so, man continues to run amok. We're continuing to create towers of Babel to ourselves, monuments to ourselves. And what is God doing? And why does God care? Because God is in the process of restoring his relationship with man. You see verse 9, paradise restored, regained. You see Christ on earth, the incarnation. Now as you're journeying through Hebrews, coming to, coming to verse 9 in chapter 2 is like finding water in the middle of the desert. You're parched. You think you're going to die. You know you're in trouble. But then we read these words, but we see him. And quickly, namely Jesus. The first time Jesus is named in the book of Hebrews, it's very significant. 
Very significant. But we see him, look at verse 9. We see him who for a little while, now the time frame is very important. We're talking like 33 years, okay? For a little while he was made lower than the angels. Jesus, the exalted one, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the one who is the exact imprint of his nature, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see Christ humbled and then exalted. And the language of the psalm is applied to Jesus now. He is made in his humanity, in his humanity, he is made a li- for a little while lower than the angels, but because of the suffering of death, he is crowned with glory and honor. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Jesus abolished death what he did at the cross he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel philippians 2 tells us he became obedient to the point of death and god then highly exalted him and that his name every knee should bow and again we do not see every knee bowing we do not see every tongue confessing colossians 1 tells us how 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 supreme how how preeminent jesus is Man is defeated, Christ is triumphant, sin and death at the cross are defeated. Sin and death defeated man, but Jesus conquered sin and death. Hebrews 2.9 is, is pointing this out, that, that really at the cross, that Christ fulfilled every requirement to be representative of mankind. In his incarnation, becoming man, and in his substitutionary sacrifice in our place, on our behalf, on the cross, his victory over sin and death, he is the second Adam. He is our federal head. He, is, he has fulfilled our original purpose perfectly. But at the present time, verse 8 can be applied to Jesus. We do not yet see everything under his feet. Every knee's not bowing, every tongue's not confessing. And what is God doing? God is forbearing. God is forbearing until all who will believe are gathered in. So you see, Jesus on earth, the incarnation, and the question, why would God ever bother with man? Answered in Christ. Amazing love, grace, mercy. The incarnation is the greatest proof of the love of God for man. It's the greatest proof of his regard for man. Christ was not sent in the form of an angel. He was sent in the form of a man. He's crowned with glory and honor now because of his redemptive work required Fulfilled everything that was required as the supreme representative of of mankind, our leader, the second Adam. You see the glory of Christ's birth at the cradle, at his birth. Look at Luke 2. You see glory at the birth of Christ. Your shepherds out in the field, verse 8. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. Shepherds were so despised. Shepherds weren't trusted. You couldn't couldn't trust a shepherd. They might lie to you or steal from you. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Here you have the humble birth of Christ coming to humble shepherds, and the glory of God shines around them. The Shekinah glory of God shines around them. They're filled with fear. The angel says, "Don't, don't fear. I'm giving you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you this day is in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They go praising God. The, the multitude of heaven is praising God. Here's their song. 
Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. And the shepherds go glorifying and praising God. And you go on and on in the birth accounts of Jesus. You've got Simeon who, who says to the Lord, you can let me die in peace because I have seen your salvation. He's been waiting. This baby who's been anointed for the rise and fall, appointed for the rise and fall of many. And then you go to John chapter one. And you read of the word. The word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us and what? We beheld his what? Glory. Glories are the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you've got Jesus in the cross, in in, in his sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, his victory over sin and death, fulfilling man's original purpose. 33 years in light of eternity, for a little while. no, No life was ever better spent we got to use our time wisely. God has ordained the days for you when there was even not one of them. Redeem the time. Use the time wisely. Jesus redeemed that time. And he has the, the name above all names, the only name, the only authority, the only identity, the only person by which we must be saved. And what's in his name? Salvation. Salvation, Acts 4.12. Even Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. There was power in his name. He upholds all things by the word of his power. There's power in the name of Jesus. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And there is life in Jesus. John 1, in him was life. Life was the light of man. Why did he become man? Why the incarnation? Why did he, as Hebrews 2.14 says, partake of flesh and blood? Why would he do this? It was to reveal God to man to fulfill the law and the prophets, to, to receive worship. He received worship. The wise men came, the, the magi came and worshiped him. He received worship and he came to bring great joy and to reveal God's love and to call sinners to repentance and, and on and on it goes throughout the entire New Testament, all the reasons that Jesus became man. And then you see Jesus in heaven. Christ's lordship over all will one day fully be seen. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every eye will behold him, even even they will look upon him whom they have pierced. But right now you can be sure that Christ right now is reigning at the right hand of God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is in control of his spiritual kingdom now and he is reigning in the hearts of all who profess him Lord. You profess Christ as Lord, he is reigning in your heart. Don't, Don't slip out from under that rule. Don't drift away from that rule. You might ask, but how can I see him? I walk by by faith, not by sight. I can't see Jesus. I've never met Jesus face to face. He's never spoken audible word to me. I haven't seen him with my eyes. How can I see Jesus? It says in verse nine, we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. The idea is that seeing equals faith. The, the, the looking, you know, in the Old Testament when they looked at, out in the wilderness, they looked to the serpent and were healed. That looking is the same as believing in the New Testament. So Hebrews 12, where it says looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter, that's believing in Jesus. That's, that's having faith in Christ. You're not gonna see him with your, with your eyes, even if you get the best glasses that have ever, ever been made. You'll see him one day. Your eyes will behold him one day. 
But here on earth, in our state, in our fallen state, in, in, our, in our recovering state, in what, in what God is reclaiming for his glory, we, we see by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Seeing Jesus in all his glory. Let's apply this. First of all, you need to see Jesus, just like I was saying, you need to see Christ in all his glory by faith. Not by your sight, by faith. Now, if you're not a believer, you gotta know this. The baby grew up, okay? And the baby's coming back and he's not a baby anymore. God restores what sin ruins. And if you're not a believer, your sins separate you from God. I saw this actually on a, a, a sign taped to a light post yesterday at a signal. Your sins separate you from God. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He, he shed his blood in your place. He died on the cross in your place. It was a substitutionary sacrifice and he paid the penalty. He, he bought your freedom. Turn to him and be saved. You've got to see Christ his glory by faith. Here's what Jesus said in John 8, 52. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You know what that means? Taste, taste is not, it, it doesn't mean a quick sip, a little bite, a little hors d'oeuvre. It is a bitter experience. It's a, it's a huge undertaking, tasting death. And he tasted death for us. The death of Christ was sufficient for all, effective for some, for those who believe. Everyone, he tasted death for everyone, verse 9 tells us. That's everyone who believes. Christ's death can only be applied to the one who comes to God in faith, wanting grace and forgiveness. They come in repentance, turning from their sins and turning to Christ by the grace of God. So the question for you is, what side of history do you want to be on? You want to be in the paradise lost side, or you want to be in the paradise found you want to be in paradise ruined or paradise restored verse 3 of chapter 2 says how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation so today is a day of salvation verse excuse me chapter 4 talks about if you hear his voice today people want to hear the voice of God right chapter 4 verse 7 today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart now look, slip down to verse 12 in the very same context in the exact same context for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart your motives are known to God and if you want to hear the voice of God you've got to know the word of God you, you, you see by faith and you hear by, by reading the word by knowing the word makes all the difference in the world that God did what we could never do in a way that we would never do it for purposes we cannot fathom so that he would be glorified and we would be saved. So, see Christ's glory by faith. Number two, see Christ's glory in your life. Celebrate the Savior. Savor his glory in your life. Basically, make much of Christ in your life. If he's the name above all names, if he's the only one by which we must be saved, then make a big deal about Jesus in your life today. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. 
Colossians 1.27 tells us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So make a lot of Jesus right now. Don't miss Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus because you overconsume worldly things or you underconsume biblical things. You can miss Jesus both ways. Overconsumption of the world or underconsumption of the word. Christ is our high priest, our great high priest. He prayed as he was about to enter the holy place, not made with hands. That glorious prayer in John 17, the greatest desire of his prayer was that his people might be with him to behold his glory. John 17, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 7th century English Puritan John Owen wrote this, one of the greatest privileges the believer has, both in this world and for eternity, is to behold the glory of Christ. Unbelievers see no glory in Christ. Others think little of Christ in his glory and see no use for his person. But God in his appointed time will vindicate his honor and glory for the, from the foolish attempts of sinful men who attempt to strip him of both. Meanwhile, it is the duty of all those who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity to testify to his divine person and glory according to the ability that God has given each of us. Last thing I'll say is this. Don't just see Christ's glory by faith. Don't just savor and, and celebrate his life in your life. But thirdly, see Christ's glory as you risk everything for him. It cannot be it should not be that we would live just for us and for our comfort. Our faith must find its way to our hands and our feet. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, do not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, God becomes human, really human, when we, we endeavor to grow out of our humanity, to leave our human nature behind us, God becomes human, and we must recognize that God wants us also to become human, really human. Because he became human to become sin for us. So that his, his, his glory would be experienced in our life, that, that we would reflect his glory in our life, that, that the image of God would be restored in us. He died for all that we sh they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And when he became human, he became a refugee. Oh, that's the hot button topic today, isn't it? Refugees. Everybody has an opinion about what we should do with refugees. Well, Jesus became a refugee that we might become his adopted children. It got me thinking about present day refugees today. The debate rages. Everyone thinks, oh, it's good and evil and protecting our interests and what have you. It's about people. Did you know underneath every human crisis there are people? Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was despised and rejected, a refugee, the most rejected refugee ever. Now, there is a worldwide refugee crisis. Lots of Christians want to make it political. The government has their job to do. Let's let them do it. The church has its job. We need to do ours. I love historian Bill Leonard's uh, very simplistic take on it. One of the responsibilities of government is to hold at bay the totally depraved multitude. So the church's job is to preach the gospel of the grace of God to the totally depraved multitude. I think we need to risk 
welcoming people into our lives who have the possibility of hurting us. You do it every day, by the way, when you say good morning to whoever you live with. The world is filled with displaced people today. Uh, more than any point since World War II, some 50 million people are not living in their place. 20 million refugees have fled outside the borders of their home countries. I want to tell you a story. There's a lady named Jenny Yang. She works with World Relief. She tells of two Afghan translators who, who helped the U.S. military, and they resettled in California. Their property recently was vandalized because they look like Muslims. We need to remember that some of the people we may fear may be our future brothers and sisters in Christ. One of our fellow believers is a living proof. Afshin Ziafat, pastor of Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. He was born into a Muslim, devout Muslim family in Iran in 1972. His family fled the violence there and um, they arrived in the United States right after the, uh, the hostage crisis began. He says, I understand what it's like to be from a place where people are suspicious of where you're from. His family had their car tires slashed, rocks thrown into their windows, BB guns shot at them. His brother and he were kicked off a soccer team when it was discovered they were from Iran. But a Christian tutor saw an opportunity to spread the gospel. Ziafat said this, she gave me a Bible in the second grade. I didn't read it until I was a senior in high school. That Bible's just laying there. How many years? God knew it's gonna land in his hands. So under a blanket with a flashlight so his parents wouldn't know, he read the Bible and he professed faith in Christ and he later graduated from seminary and he's pastoring a church and he goes to Turkey every year to, ha to help Iranian refugees know how to evangelize and preach the gospel. And here's what he said. I'm just thankful that one lady looked at our family and particularly looked at me and didn't see a threat but saw an opportunity. You know, we applaud missionaries who have an eternal perspective and take risks. But when the mission field all of a sudden is coming towards us, why is it we want to lock our doors? The goal, the goal of the Christian shouldn't be to preserve our lives, but to expend our lives for the gospel. If we're gonna see the glory of Christ by faith, and we're gonna celebrate the glory of Christ in our lives, then it has got to get out onto the streets. It's not about politics, it's about living the gospel. Russell Moore said this, we're strangers and exiles on our best days, but we are not orphans and, and wanderers. Our strangeness is only hopeful if it is freakishly clinging to the strange, strange mission of Christ crucified and risen. 